Welcome everyone to episode seven of Plot Devices, The Plot Awakens. That's going to be the subtitle of this. No, it's not, because I like changing up titles. I am your host, Brandon King, alongside my two co-hosts for today. Sam Anthorian Corvaya is joining us today. Sam, how are you today? I am good. It's been a busy morning, but I'm excited to get uh, this podcast rolling. Let's do it. Feels like everyone has been having busy mornings lately, and it's kind of nice. But also, I hope everyone's getting sleep. Noah, uh, Noah Guzman is joining us. (laughs) Noah Guzman, are you getting sleep? I'm getting excellent sleep. Um, I feel super clean. I feel super fresh today, um, as I do every day, um, except Thursdays. And I have a nice, clean, smooth-shaven face. I have Diva from Overwatch on my shirt. I'm very excited to talk about what we have on the on our list today. It's going to be a good conversation. Yeah, y'all can't see, but Noah's looking smooth today. We all like it. really is. The first trailer for Disney's Encanto dropped this week. It's again the newest project for Disney's upcoming uh, animated project Encanto. Stephanie Beatriz is going to voice Mirabelle Madrigal, uh, the only non-powered member of a magical Colombian family who has to save her family home when their magic is threatened by dark and mysterious forces. Uh, the voice cast is also starring John Leguizamo and uh, Wilma Valderrama, as alongside songs from Lin-Manuel Miranda, as well as Coco co-composer, that is a tone twister, Jermaine Franco, who worked with uh, Michael Giacchino on that film as well. Uh, Zootopia directors Byron Howard and Jared Bush are going to be co-directing the project with uh, Therese Catro-Smith, who also worked on The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, and Encanto is set for a theatrical release on November 24th, followed by a Disney Plus release a month from then on Christmas Eve. Sam, I want to get your thoughts on this trailer, uh, what Disney has been doing recently, what you think of Encanto as potentially their next big hit. It looks so colorful. When I first saw the teaser, that was the first thing that captured my attention was the color. It was beautiful. And the fact that like each of the characters they were introducing had this little power. And then Mirabelle, I think is the main character's name. It's just funny because then clearly she's the one that doesn't have the power. But um, I just found it fascinating that the house itself was alive. And then we see this trailer and it actually shows it crumbling a little bit, which is kind of sad because you see how enthusiastic and lively that teaser is. And then you actually see how this house is being threatened as well as these characters and their powers. And it's like, oh, that puts an interesting spin on it because it just seems so happy and colorful in that teaser. And then you see this trailer and you're like, oh no, something's going to happen. Something's going down. That to me, that just really interested me. And I'm excited to see the movie. Very, very excited. Uh, Noah, over to you. That's on Encanto. The character Mirabel, uh, Mirabel is very uh, intriguing. I love all the hairstyles. I especially love hers. I love all the curly hair that we see with this animation. Uh, it all looks just so good. Um, another story told, uh, taking some um, his some influences from Hispanic culture uh, that we've seen before in Coco. And so just seeing that return to screen in another story just makes me excited because uh, these are these are, you know, there are expansive cultures that deserve more than just one perspective to be viewed from and, uh, you know, exploring, exploring Encanto with their superhuman abilities. You know, we have um, one of her family members is super strong. She's lifting bridges. Her mother, who is seemingly healing people with her cooking, um, which I just love uh, that that's like what her power is. Um, so those are standouts for me. You know, the curly hairstyles, I love to see. Um, I love all the powers and I like how central the family feels like as a unit. So I'm hoping that this isn't just Mirabelle's story of, um, like, I, I don't want this to be her independent story where she goes and has an adventure, uh, separate to all these other characters. Um, I would really love it if like the family remained central throughout. Uh, so we'll see if we have that, uh, for now. Yeah, it's colorful. It's beautiful. The music's going to be um, amazing. I'm not surprised Lin-Manuel was attached. Uh, and yeah, that's going to be great. And it's coming out so soon. Yeah. 
I will say, as, as far as the trailer visually looks, again, it, it is Disney somehow one-upping themselves on the animation department. I, I swear, every time they come out with a new theatrical movie, I go, this is the pinnacle of it. Like, Moana came out, and I was like, this is as good as it gets. And Frozen 2 comes out, and I'm like, this is as good as it gets. And then this comes out, and I'm like, somehow they know what to do with colors and lighting and character designs. And you guys totally nailed on the head with the character designs. Like, every character is so distinct and seemingly likable. That kid who talks to all the animals is going to be what Doolittle never could, and I cannot wait for that. Um, and Mir Mirabelle seems like a great character. I love Stephanie Beatrice. She's going to be great in this. Uh, I love the, you know, the supporting cast involved. I don't know about you guys. I am encouraged by the choices of Howard and, uh, of Howard and Bush directing this. Um, Zootopia, I was not as high on initially, and I've since really come around on it. I think there's a lot more... There's a lot more depth and nuance to it that I appreciate when I watched it with like the younger kids who I was camp counseling or like with my uh, younger cousin. And like I saw that they were catching onto the nuances more. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Um, and Limamo Miranda, again, kind of, you know, stepping back, but still very much in the Disney fold. We're going to see him do a little maybe in a little while. So cool to see that. I'm sure the songs will be great. But again, like the story is interesting. I think aside from the, you know, maybe a little bit of the cliche of like, oh, look, it's, you know, the non-powered person in the powered family. That's going to be, you know, a thing. And if you, I think if we can get past that, we're going to get some really rich characters, some really great animation. And this is, again, perfect for Thanksgiving release. I think it's going to absolutely kill the box office. Yeah. And just to add in real quickly, too, I, I loved your opinion on it. I, I also feel positive about um, Byron and Jared both directing it, um, just because it's, it, I really enjoyed Zootopia. I was kind of in that field where I thought it was like one of the best things I'd ever seen from Disney at that time. Mm -hmm. and, and it was just really, really fun. So yeah, I'm pretty, I'm feeling pretty positive about it. All right, let's hop into our next major story. It's another trailer because we don't care enough about those days. Um, but this one's actually pretty big. It's for Licorice Pizza. And no, don't let the name is fool you. This is actually a thing in Southern California. Like there's actual history behind it and we'll get into it. Uh, this is the newest project from Paul Thomas Anderson, of course, best known for his releases like There Will Be Blood, Phantom Thread from a couple years ago. This is his first uh, feature film back. It stars Cooper Hoffman, the son of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who worked a lot with Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, it is set against the San Fernando Valley in uh, 1973 amongst political corruption and cultural people. He stars as Gary Valentine, an aspiring teenage actor who forms a relationship with a classmate, Alana Kane, who is played by Heim guitarist uh, Alana Heim in her acting debut as well. Uh, the cast also includes Sean Penn, Maya Rudolph, Tom Waits, Benny Safdie of the Safdie Brothers, and Bradley Cooper as well. Uh, Licorice Pizza is set for a limited release on November 26th, followed by a wide theatrical release on Christmas Day. Uh, Noah, I want to get your thoughts first. I don't think any of us have mentioned Paul Thomas Anderson before, but uh, your thoughts on his project as a whole, and are, is Licorice Pizza on your, uh, your waitlist now? After watching the trailer, I have one question. What is this about? Um, if it's just centralized, if it's just central about uh, the relationship between um, that, that Gary Valentine character along with uh, Haim, a uh, guitarist, uh, I'm pulling up her name now. You just said it. Alana. Alana Kane. Um, I like her character. I, I like these coming of age, like exploring what it means to, I don't know if this is their first love or if this is like their first time um just putting their emotions out there like for for other people in their community to react to um i don't mind stories like that and i i, I do like them they always leave me with like with a good uh a good sense of just uh young spirit right uh they're lighthearted and they're fun but seeing bradley cooper and then you naming off the rest of the cast that's going to be attached it makes me go like well who like what are all of their appearances going to be? Bradley Cooper looks like he's some kind of rock star, like he's smashing cars with a golf club, and he just looks wild. Um, I there's a lot of there's a lot of things like 
flaring up from this trailer. Um, I need to hear from you both though, before I decide, you know, how I'm going to, how I'm going to approach this project. I do want to preface real quick. Uh, sorry. I, I just want to preface licorice pizza. The meaning is a, it, there was an old seventies chain of record stores in Southern California. And that's where the thing gets its name. Music is going to be a big part of this. And I figured as much, sorry, go ahead, Sam. No, no, don't be sorry. Cause I'm really glad you brought that up. One of the, my points was, yeah, I don't understand the, the culture that you seem to know behind it with like Southern California. That's that's I would never have known that. So thank you for adding that. Um, but for me, I'm, I'm skeptical. I am. Um, because kind of like Noah, when I saw the trailer, I just didn't really know what it was about. And like, I, I applaud trailers when they do that because I hate trailers that give away too much. But then at the same time, I feel like you also kind of have to have a little bit in it to keep me intrigued. And for me personally, there wasn't anything that jumped out where I'm like, oh yeah, I need to see this. So for me, I'm feeling kind of lukewarm about it. And it, it kind of doesn't help, no offense, to Paul Thomas Anderson's name attached to this because I actually hated phantom thread so so much i did not like phantom thread i know it's a hot take but to me i was so bored and so phantom thread i would say the one saving grace was leslie manville i did like her role in it but i just did not like uh, anderson's direction in it didn't really get anything out of it and i yeah so i'm a little skeptical just because his name is attached to it so hopeful we'll see what happens yeah, I think also just worth noting as far as the music portion of it, uh, Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, who has done a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's other movies, he is coming back to compose this as confirmed by Polygon. And I could not be more excited because as far as I, I'm also not on the Phantom Thread love train, I thought it was good, uh, but it gets very boring in the middle. And I will completely acknowledge that. But I love the score. And, like it's become one of my you know big Spotify hits. Uh, I will sorry. give the score props. That is true. The score was beautiful. So I would I, I do appreciate the score. Otherwise, I was bored. Yes. I just wanted to mention that um, I I don't pride myself on my memory for like director's names, but I knew that this one was striking a chord with me. So Paul Thomas Anderson in my head, I'm like, okay, so that's not like Resident Evil guy, right? No, that's Paul Wes Anderson yes. or W.S. Anderson. Yes. And then I go, okay, so this isn't also the the um, Grand Budapest Hotel director, right? That's Wes Anderson. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my gosh, this is such a... Um, Names are hard. Right. <laughs> Too many Andersons. <laughs> Too many Andersons. This is the trifold. Paul Thomas Anderson, he's part of that now. Um, I'm just happy to clarify that for myself, as well as any listeners who don't have the memory of IMDb. Uh, so I just wanted to mention that. That was funny. Yeah, I'll simply just go along this. I have not been the biggest supporter of Paul Thomas Anderson because, again, I did not love Phantom Thread. I did not like Inherent Vice at all, but I love There Will Be Blood. Uh, and I'm very curious to see what he is able to do with Alana Heim as an actress. I know he's directed a lot of their music videos. Cooper Hoffman, who knows? Again, he's Philip's son. I'm sure he's picked up some stuff. Bradley Cooper is John Peters. All of y'all look up John Peters' history. That's basically what he is in the trailer. Neither here nor there. Um, but this looks interesting. Like, I'm all a sucker for coming-of-age stories. The nuance of it all looks great. I love any trailer that has David Bowie in it. So, you know what? Why not? I'll give this a shot. And you know what? Early awards contender, it's Paul Thomas. It's going to happen. Brandon, per usual, has the most contextual history to this, and I am very excited to hear his <laughs> thoughts when he sees the movie. Because you are killing it with a lot of background, and I love it. Can't but wait. I haven't seen Boogie Nights, and there's a group of film fans who will never take my word unless I've seen that. So someone in the background, you know, miles away, screamed after hearing Brandon just say that. But that's fine. Robert, <laughs> yeah, I know Marvel. Oh um, gosh, let's move on to the exact opposite of this. We're going into Star Wars land, not Disney Star Wars, but yes, the, the, the Star Wars shows we're talking about, I should say, uh, two of them specifically. The Mandalorian spinoff, The Book of Boba Fett, has recently been confirmed. With a couple of details around it, uh, the series is going to premiere this year, barely. 
Uh, the, the season the season one premiere of Book of Boba Fett is set to premiere on Disney Plus on December 29th, and will pick up immediately after the events of season two of The Mandalorian, with Boba Fett and Fennec Shand attempting to control the late Jabba the Hutt's criminal empire on Tatooine. Again, this is, you know, post-Return of the Jedi, Jabba is dead, spoilers. Uh, Tamora Morrison and Ming-Na Wen will reprise their roles as both Fett and Shand, respectively, but seemingly other cast members from the Mandalorian universe will be appearing in there as well. We will see. Uh, Mandalorian directors Robert Rodriguez, John Favreau, Dave Filoni, and Bryce Dallas Howard will all return to direct the series, with Rodriguez serving as showrunner as well. In addition to that piece of news, uh, Diego Luna confirmed this week that the Rogue One prequel series Andor has wrapped film. Uh, Rogue One co-creator uh, Tony Gilroy is set to return to showrun the whole thing. It's going to be 12 episodes long, and it will explore Cassian Andor's journey through the early rebellion five years prior to the events of the Rogue One movie. Uh, the series will... Yeah. The series will also star Emerald City's Adria Arjona, as well as Fiona Shaw, Stellan Skarsgård, who's going to be appealing in uh, Dune later this year, as well as Rogue One cast members Genevieve O'Reilly and Forrest Whitaker, reprising their roles as Mon Mothma and Saw Gerrera, respectively. Finally, Andor is set for release sometime in 2022, although that release date is still TBD as far as uh, filming is concerned. Uh, no, I want to go over to you. Between these two pieces of news, which are you now more excited for, Book of Boba Fett or Andor? Book of Boba Fett all the way. I loved seeing Ming-Na Wen in uh, The Mandalorian, so I absolutely cannot wait to get more um, from her. And just looking at the directors, Robert Rodriguez, uh, another one of those names where I go, that sounds familiar. And of course, he's directed some wonderful horror that I've um, watched in the past, like Planet Terror. Um, this isn't horror, but who hasn't seen Spy Kids um, and, and hasn't like you know loved some of his work? So I'm actually very eager to see that he's... Uh, going to be showrunner and then Bryce Dallas Howard returning. Uh, there was that whole story, uh, at least storyline uh, for us as watchers, where when we got that sanctuary episode from Mandalorian season one, people thought it was a little bit too slow because it really brought um, the Mandalorian like into a calm setting. People, you know, I've heard comments that were just like, it was, it wasn't enough, right? It, it pulled its punches. Well, in season two, we get the heiress and that was one of the most action packed episodes of the entire season. And so I love that Bryce Dallas Howard just shows um, her flexibility as a director and, and her range. So uh, seeing her return to the series, um, I'm definitely going to be looking out for what episode that is. Don't get me wrong. I, I love Diego Luna. So seeing anything Rogue One related, of course, I'm going to be paying attention to that. Uh, but between these two, yeah, Boba Fett wins out for me. I can't wait to learn more. I am fascinated by Andor just because I think Cassian is a character, and Diego Luna deserves so much credit for what he does with that role. I think he brings a lot of nuance to what could have very well been a very basic kind of rebellion spy character. And I'm very excited to see what Tony Gilroy, who worked on Rogue One, does to kind of you know filter out and develop that character even more. More Saw Gerrera is fantastic in my mind. I'm surprised they shot it this soon. Uh, I know they've been working on a lot of the shows, whether it's Ahsoka, and I know Obi-Wan is still filming at this point, so I'm a little surprised they got through it this quickly. But Book of Boba Fett. Uh, season two of Mandalorian just shot that into stratosphere. I cannot wait for that. I did not care about Boba Fett, and I still don't love the character, but I'm fascinated to see where he goes in this series alongside Fetishan, who has, again, become kind of a fan favorite. And you mentioned the Bryce Dallas Howard thing. I love the fact that of the Mandalorian directors, you know, we have Taika Waititi and we have big name directors. And then you get Bryce Dallas Howard, who all of a sudden has become like a favorite amongst the Lucasfilm inner crowd. And I love that. Like, again, and going to the point of the heiress, that episode is phenomenal. And the fact that we're going to get to see her back is, you know, fantastic. Very curious to see what Robert Rodriguez can do with this. I've been hit and missing the guy for a lot of years, but I respect the hell out of him, especially what he did with Boba Fett in season two. So count me in on this. Yeah, and it's it's just interesting because like the only thing I really had to add to this was you know I'm I'm still 
learning the Star Wars universe, you both are more way in depth in it for many years longer than I have. And so um, just hearing your two perspectives on it, I think it's just really fascinating because my understanding is that we get to delve into some more of these characters that, you know, we don't really see that often in like the main line movies. And so I just think that where a lot of Star Wars' work is going from here on out is just exploring those backstories for people who are kind of off to the side. And so I'm really excited, especially with Boba Fett. He was always kind of that mysterious person on the side who's gotten more spotlight as the years have gone on. But, um, you know, I'm just excited to see something about his story. And, uh, you know, that's that's the one that I was looking forward to the most out of the two. So otherwise, you know, I that's all I had to add to it. I do want to just pitch a question real quickly. Uh, as far as the release date goes, December 29th, so right before the new year. Is this good, or would you guys have moved this to 2022? Because we are also getting Obi-Wan, Andor, and Mandalorian Season 3 all next year. I personally think it's bad. But it's not just because of all the Star Wars projects wrapped into one similarly, but it's also, I think the premiere date is when Hawkeye's finale would be dropping. And I feel like that's just... That's just a lot. That's a lot going on for Disney Plus. And so I feel like I don't want any of the projects to cannibalize each other. And that's just my biggest concern. So I would go more towards the it's a negative thing. But that's just me. It just sounds like I'm going to be very, we're going to be very busy uh, in December. <laughs> like as soon as Hawkeye starts, if we don't have that that break period, um, we might even get fatigued. You know, who knows if we can keep up with every new episode, like keeping up with all these things starting you know, it feels weird, but I'm ready for it. You know, I'm ready for that consistency. I will say, like, I saw this briefly with, you know, Bad Batch and Loki earlier this year, where Bad Batch did not take a ratings dip, but there were clearly, there was clearly less talk about it because of what Loki was doing. And I am a little bit afraid of that for Loba Fett, but I think the popularity of the character is going to elevate that. So hopefully we'll wait and see. I think it's going to be great. Let's move on from there to our next big topic, Wonka. Everybody excited for the Willy Wonka prequel? Because it is happening. We're going to talk about it. Uh, filming on Warner Brothers' Willy Wonka prequel, Wonka, began this past week. And with it, a full cast list for the project. I should actually just specify real quick. This is a prequel to the novel, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, to the book specifically. Alongside Timothy Chalamet as the young Wonka, which was confirmed a while back, uh, the cast will also include Keegan-Michael Key, Olivia Coleman, Sally Hawkins, Matt Lucas, Simon Farnaby, and Rowan Atkinson. Uh, the film will be directed by Paddington and Paddington 2 director Paul King, and I am cheering, and will be focusing on Wonka's early days before he opened his famous factory and honed his, and honed his craft, I should say, as an ambitious chocolatier. Uh, Wonka is set for a release on March 17th, 2023, so we won't be expecting it for a little while. Uh, Noah, I want to get a start with you because you actually posed the question earlier about what our connection was to Willy Wonka and that story as a whole. Are you interested in this? Because I know there's been cynicism about Timothy Chalamet's casting, about the idea of whether we need an earlier Wonka. What are your thoughts on this? Thank you, Brandon. Yes, uh, I'll bounce back that question to you uh, as soon as I'm done with this, because all I feel when it comes to a prequel for Wonka um, and not knowing where exactly the book uh, story takes place I'm afraid that um, this exploration of Wonka's character at a young age is going to remove what was so magical about, I think, both of the movies and even the stage play. I've seen the musical. Um, and that is the factory. You know, um, So I'm worried that without that factory, where's the magic? You know, Wonka as a character, I want to know as he moves through the world um, at this young age, uh, you know, what will he encounter and what will really be that that central focus um, is this character enough, at least for me, um, not so much because actually Wonka's influence in my household was not 
heavy. You know, I saw the original as a kid, and then I did see Johnny Depp's uh, version when it was released uh, at a drive-in theater. Uh, but the question I wanted to ask you and Sam, Brandon, is, uh, you know, how how influential or how dear is Wonka to either of you and your household? You know, was it something that you that you all wanted to watch, like, with your family together multiple times? Or was it, hey, look at Wonka's on, let's just throw it on. So uh, either of you, you know, let me hear what that's like. Uh, 1971, I should also add for the Willy Wonka date. I completely messed that up. Yeah, I like a lot of families. We've watched that movie a ton and we all loved it to death. And, you know, like, and again, I've, I've made this public before. Like, I have really soured on my thoughts on Roald Dahl, you know, learning about a lot of his past and a lot of his previous comments. And I really do not take those lightly. So the idea of, you know, adapting more of Dahl's work willingly, especially nowadays where there's so much content in the works, I don't necessarily endorse it. It, it does bear influence to me. I do have nostalgia towards it. I completely get the backlash towards it for a bit. Yeah. And it's, you know, for my family, it was also a movie that we played all the time, specifically Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory more so than Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Charlie kind of freaked me out. I was kind of on that side of the fan base that was like, mm, I don't know about that. Johnny Depp brings an interesting perspective that kind of creeps me out more than intrigues me. But um, but for Willy Wonka, that one we watched all the time. And to be honest, I think as a, a, a child, I was scarred for life with the tunnel scene, as we all know it. <laughs> and so it's just interesting because I just have such vivid memories of watching that and enjoying it. And then, of course, like, unfortunately, similar to Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling, it's the same idea where it's like, okay, the, the original creator behind that story is kind of soured on me after all the comments that have been released about about said person. So it's, it is an interesting move that nowadays, even despite knowing that we are willingly making things like that. So that's kind of a shame. But otherwise, you know, I'm intrigued. I, I do like Timothy Chalamet a lot. And so um, I kind of, I don't know why, from my side, I don't really get the hate because I think that he's a wonderful actor and I think he would be a really interesting choice for a young Wonka. But um, but that's just kind of coming from me. Otherwise, I think it's an interesting project, um, especially since it's something pretty close to my heart. And uh, the fact that Paddington 2's Paul King is attached to it. I'm very happy about that because Paddington 2 was phenomenal, so, which I did not expect in that time. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. We'll see what happens. All right. Lots of Netflix things. Uh, literally, as we were taping last week, and we actually discussed the uh, Stranger Things uh, season four trailer last week, but that was not the only thing at uh, Netflix's uh, to dumb release date. And if you don't get the name, just go pop on Netflix. It will become apparent. Uh, but here are just some of the things that we're running down for that. Uh, the Cowboy Bebop opening titles, uh, which are going to be for the live action Cowboy Bebop series coming later in November. We also had, uh, if you're any of the Witcher fans out there, we had footage from season two, which is set to drop, I believe, in December, as well as a confirmation on season three. Uh, Tiger King 2 is happening, and it's happening in November. So if you're you know, fans of Tiger King out there, if you don't have to wait that much longer, it will be here fairly soon. Uh, both Ozark Season 4 and Bridgerton Season 2 got first look reveals uh, during the presentation as well. Enola Holmes uh, got confirmed for a sequel with both Millie Bobby Brown and uh, Helena Bonham Carter returning. I cannot wait for that. Uh, trailers, many of them. Uh, the Sandman series, which has been in development for decades, is finally coming on Netflix. Uh, Neil Gaiman will be attached. The first teaser came out. Uh, the Harder They Fall with uh, Idris Elba, uh, R.J. Kyler, who else? Delroy Lindo, full cast of um, the Western movie. It looks absolutely amazing. Uh, Inside Job, the next uh, animated series from the team behind Gravity Falls, also got a trailer behind that. And Army of Thieves, the spinoff for uh, Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. It got a full trailer released for that as well. I have stayed away from that because I still have not seen Army of the Dead, but uh, they were there. And finally, uh, the big announcement, The Crown Season 5 was not only confirmed, it is confirmed for next November. So for all of you who were you know, raving and cheering about all the Emmy wins, you will have to wait a bit longer for Crown Season 5, but it is on its way. 
Uh, Noah, after all of that and giving me a giving me a bit of a breathing break, what stood out to you from this dumb presentation? What stood out to me is you saying you haven't seen Army of the Dead. I Kevin, haven't. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that that just sh- that just shocked me for some reason. I will mention Army of Thieves. I know I'm <laughs> I'm going to talk about Army of the Dead and what it was, I guess, supposed to do. And I guess it was supposed to set up a lot of um, hints or teases that were going to be explored in later series um, from Zack Snyder. So then when we get a trailer for Army of Thieves, which is a full movie um centering or including one of the characters that is part of the army of the dead squad uh it makes me go oh is this like just another another thing that's going to be attached to this like new um army verse from snyder interesting right like i I probably i will watch it because they did choose one of the more um i think hilarious characters to, to follow um but aside from that, let's talk about Ozark. I'm a big Ozark fan. I love Jason Bateman and what he's um, done with that series. I avoided, not avoided it, but I um, kind of like steered clear from it. Uh, just thinking that it wasn't one of my genres that I would fall into. Um, and then season three release and I, you know, hopped on board and I did not stop. I burned through those three seasons so quickly. Uh, cannot wait. Um, I'm a fan of Bridgerton. I uh, cannot wait to see what season two does because of course we are exploring um, different character storylines that, that don't um, exactly follow. I mean, of course, we know that um, one of the cast members isn't even returning for season two. Um, and that actually made news on Twitter. That sparked some conversation. Um, Reg John Page. Reggie, sorry. Reggie John Page. No, thank you so much. Um, so Bridgerton, of course. And then the last one is just uh, The Witcher. I am a fan of The Witcher. Uh, I haven't completed the game, but I do play it. And then I love Henry Cavill. Uh, and what they've done with Geralt's story in that first season. So uh, I'll definitely be keeping an eye on The Witcher. And so that's, you know, for me with Netflix's live stream, I did really enjoy the Stranger Things, obviously, that, that teaser that came out. Um, but then I also was really excited about the Cowboy Bebop opening title, too. That was something that just, you know, it's it's such a good Good score. If if none of you have heard the opening to Cowboy Bebop, you got to do yourself a favor and look it up because it is the jazziest thing you'll listen to. Um, but I, I love it. And so I like that they really played homage to that. And it looks pretty similar to the original. And I, I do think that the main three are really casted well in Cowboy Bebop. And especially because I love John Cho so much. And I just really hope for the best for him. And so um, I'm very excited about Cowboy Bebop. And the fact that they uh, did a pretty good job of um, matching it to the original anime's opening title, I'm very excited about it it just makes me feel like okay they care about the series they care about the fans so let's go and we'll see what that's about i also found it interesting that they announced tiger king too because i just feel like you know it it really took the world by storm not only because it dropped around the time that everything shut down with the pandemic but also because it is the wildest thing to watch ever and so i just think it's interesting that there is a second one that's confirmed and we'll see what topics they cover there especially because i believe one of the people who worked closely with him had recently passed i'm sure that this was probably already in the works before that person passed but it's just interesting it keeps popping up in news every now and then and also carol baskin i believe was on dancing with the stars so for some reason we just can't seem to escape tiger king and in any way possible so um you know that'll be interesting and then i also thought it was interesting that enola holmes 2 is also announced because i didn't think that it would like merited a sequel i i I liked it i thoroughly enjoyed it and i felt satisfied with it once it finished um and i know that it's not necessarily i don't think it's necessarily a sequel right it's more of like a prequel to I heard it was a proper sequel, but maybe it is a proper sequel. Oh, okay. Uh, No, because maybe, maybe it is. And then I, I'm totally wrong, but either way, I just felt satisfied, like with 
uh, the way Enola Holmes ended and I did not feel the need for another. So I'm like, oh, okay, cool. We'll see what happens there. And then in terms of trailers, the harder they fall. That's one of my, my highly anticipated Netflix movies that are coming up in the fall. I was just happy to see an additional trailer. It gives more context and it has an amazing cast. So those are the things that I'm excited about. I did confirm Enola Holmes 2 is confirmed as a sequel from uh, Jack Thornton, the screenwriter. And that is one of the things that I'm actually very excited about. Like, I loved Enola Holmes. Check out my review for ASU Odyssey. It's great. Um, I thought it was delightful. Millie Bobby Brown absolutely gets to shine in there, and I cannot wait to see what she does next. Uh, the other thing, Cowboy Bebop. Uh, I actually just started watching the anime for the first time for the live-action series. It's so much fun. But beyond that, oh my god, why is the theme song so good? No one told me it was this good, and I should have been prepared for this. Anime um, openings know their stuff. Like between them the, and Neon Genesis, I'm like, oh my gosh, I love music from animes. Anyways, I digress. I, literally, I sat down on my like digital keyboard and I had to work out the horn parts like immediately. I'm just like, what is this? I need to know. It's so good. It, um, Noah Holmes, delightful. I cannot wait to see more from that. Specifically, though, The Sandman. I have not read the graphic novel, but I know that this has been in the works for years. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was attached to this. David Goyer was attached to this. Neil Gaiman took the rights back and they gave it back again. This whole thing. We finally got the visual for it. I love the way this looks, having not read the graphic novel with the caveat. But I love the way that this looks. Like, I love Charles Dance's, like, the charlatan magician. I love the stuff with, like, Dream in the Endless. That all looks great. The rest of the task looks great. So, like, there's a lot of, like, weird, nerdy Gaiman stuff that I'm excited about. And Harder They Fall, which looks awesome um just the cast around it looks spectacular so a lot of good stuff from this i don't care about tiger king 2 though sorry it's like i do care about it unfortunately because it is a guilty pleasure but it's like like i just only care about it to an extent because i find it it's like gossip unfortunately because gossip's not good but somehow you know you still hear about it and you're curious you know like that's kind of where i'm at with tiger king and that's how i was when i first watched it. i'm like "Eh, everyone's talking about it might as well but yeah i don't know take it for what it's worth (laughs) <laughs> it's a tantalizing sense of, ooh. Exactly. There you go. Perfect. So, yeah. All right. Well, that kind of wraps up the news for this week, everybody. Thank you. Uh, this next portion, we're going to go ahead and cover each of our uh, corners of the world. We have a quick hit that we're going to deliver for you in about one minute. Um, who would like to volunteer to go first today? Brandon? Uh, I'll go first. All right. All right. In three, two, one. Uh, I'm sure some of you online have caught the uh, Daniel Craig is the weekend meme. And I think for a long time, a lot of us just thought, oh, this isn't a thing. It's online meme culture. No one cares. Well, recently, Daniel Craig did an interview with the New York Times, and he was talking about that, obviously, for No Time to Die. And he was talking about that meme, and he was asked about it, and he knows it exists. We won. Um, again, for those of you who don't know, just go look up, you know, ladies and gentlemen, it's the weekend from Daniel Craig. It's this clip that circulates on Twitter seemingly once or twice a week, uh, whatever, you know, people find it inclined to do so. It's weird. It's point blank and everyone just falls in love with it. And it's a, it's a succeed for meme culture. Like I thought it was funny. It's stupid. And it's cool that Daniel Craig, like pay attention. That's all I have to say. Sweet. Okay. And then I'll go ahead next. So um, we'll go ahead and start, get started in three, two, one. So what I actually was excited about was that we got a Teen Wolf sequel movie announced. Oh my God. Teenage Sam was like screaming. I I was so pumped. And so I know, yes, there was the original with Michael J. Fox. I know that. But I grew up with the one that had Tyler Posey and Dylan O'Brien and all the amazing cast members that are attached to it. But either way, it ran from, I believe, 2011, 2017. But there were also a lot of unanswered questions and things that I was hoping for with the cast and the characters. So I'm just excited. It's supposed to be on Paramount Plus 
in uh, 2022, the sequel movie. And so my hope for it would be that I hope we see Dylan O'Brien as um, a member of the FBI, because that's what he was training for. He went to school for it. And so I would really love to see that character, uh, specifically Stal Stalinsky, as um, an FBI agent. That's my biggest hope. And just to see um, where all these other characters are at this point. I really I think there's a lot of content they could work with there. And I'm just super excited about it. I'll admit, I know the cast more than I do the show, but I'm excited for the fans. Uh, Noah, on to you. Okay, I will start right now. So I actually just watched the latest AHS season um, double feature. It isn't an entire season with one story. It breaks it up in half. It has the first creature being like the siren, kind of like these vampire creatures that just suck blood and they live forever. And that just wrapped up. And it kind of left me with like, ooh, I don't know if I want to continue with this series, but I'll talk about that later. But we got the first episode of the second feature, and that's going to be Aliens. And who I was excited to see in this series was Rachel Hilson from Love, Victor. Um, Definitely check that out if you're curious about what AHS is doing right now, that is on Hulu. And secondly, uh, Five Nights at Freddy's. Um, It's been in the works for like, it's been whispered about because we don't know where that series is going to go or where that movie is going to go. Um, from Jason Blum, but Chris Columbus is no longer directing it. He is from the Harry Potter franchise, if you're familiar with his directing work. Uh, but what we do know about the new director is that it will need to be, uh, you know, confirmed from the series creator, uh, fi- the FNAF series creator, Scott Cawthon. He's going to have the final say. And that's my minute. <laughs> so thank and that you. that has been your quick hits. That is your quick hits. Uh, three minutes out of your day. Uh, so I think that is it for our quick hits. Awesome. We knocked it out of the park, guys. So now we're going to move on to our next segment for our new movies of the week. So uh, we'll start off with The Addams Family 2, which I am excited to hear about from Brandon. He's um, one of our top, uh, what would you say, like commentators when it comes to animated movies. So I'm really excited to hear what he has to say about it. So uh, Brandon, go ahead and take it away. You say top commenter. I just say someone who doesn't have a life. Um, the Adams family. More confidence. Ah, uh, never. Uh, the Adams family too. This is uh, directed by Greg Tiernan and Conrad Vernon, who direct who returned from the uh, 2019 animated film of. Of course, this is based on Charles Adams' series of cartoons, and this sequel jumps basically sometime after the events of the first uh, movie. We're not entirely sure, but it's sometime afterwards. We once again follow most of the voice cast from the original movie. Once again, I have Oscar Isaac as uh, Gomez Adams, Charlize Theron as uh, Morticia. Most importantly, uh, Chloe Grace Moretz as Wednesday Adams. We have, uh, who else? Snoop Dogg back as Cousin It and uh, Nick Kroll back as uh, Uncle Fester. The only one who isn't returning is uh, Finn Wolfhard. This movie, he is replaced by Javon Walton from uh, Euphoria as uh, Pugsley. The gist of the story is that Wednesday has been running a lot of really neat experiments. She's figured out this way to transfer personality traits between different beings, i.e. an octopus and her uncle Fester, to make him smarter, so to speak. Uh, There is a scientist played by uh, Bill Hader who is like, hey, this is really cool. And she's like, well, you clearly don't trust me enough, so bye. So we don't think much of that for very often. But he does come back later in a thing that revolves when the Adams family goes on a road trip. Uh, Morticia and Gomez basically fear that they are losing control over uh, Pugsley and uh, Wednesday. They're growing up. They're you know, developing their own tastes and they feel left out of their lives. So they take the Adams family camper all across, you know, the great U.S. to, you know, all the different places to Salem, to Death Valley, to the Grand Canyon, all over the place. Meanwhile, they are being pursued by some kind of shady lawyer type uh, played by Wallace Shawn, who is basically insistent that Wednesday is not actually the Adams' biological daughter. So we have this kind of subplot going around with all the road trip shenanigans that ensue. I will fully admit, I am one of the five people who kind of liked the 2019 Adams Family. I thought it actually stuck to a lot of what Charles Adams' original... And I, 
I've read some of them. I've, I've clearly not read a lot of them, but I've, I've read enough to like know what the gist of it was. I, like anyone, you know, appreciate the, you know, live action 90s movies with, um, uh, with, with Angelica Houston, that whole cast. Like, I appreciate all that stuff. And I thought the 2019 version was fun. It was fine. The jokes were fine. The animation was unique and weird when it wanted to be. When it had to focus on a story, it gets really boring and really devious and not very fun, but I enjoyed it for what it was. And this is kind of the same, in my opinion. Like, I had fun with it. Uh, there are some really, really stupid jokes. Why I laughed at them, I will never know. Some of them I think are really well done. The voice cast clearly comes to play here. Oscar Isaac and Charlize Theron have fantastic chemistry. I almost wish they were live-action Gomez and Morticia, but we're getting a live-action series without them anyways. Can't wait to see that. Um, they do have good chemistry on there. Chloe Grace Moretz is channeling a lot of Wednesday's boredom a lot more, and it can get really tedious if you're not into the character's journey, which I was, but I can clearly see this being like, oh, this is kind of boring. It's kind of one note, especially with the whole, you know, scientist and adoption subplot, which kind of is not given a ton of focus until the second half of the movie when the movie remembers it has a plot, um, which I kind of wish it was just the Adams just doing weird, quirky things. But then I thought, does this even need to be a movie? Could it just have just been like a couple of shorts on like, you know, the Cartoon Network or something like that? That's like, oh, here's the Adams family going to the beach. They're weird. Like, I think that would have been good enough minus, you know, a 90 plus minute movie. There's actually some good stuff between Morticia and Wednesday here about, you know, when the whole adoption thing comes up or doesn't come up, so to speak, because they play with it. There's this kind of, you know, interaction of like, oh, like, you know, you're my daughter, like, I love you. And there's this whole thing with Wednesday of not feeling, you know, loved as an Adams and like what that means and like the generational history of it all. Bette Midler pops up for a few scenes as the grandma and she's, you know, hilarious as usual. I found it okay. Like, it is a perfectly fine watch if you need a fun, you know, family watch for, you know, spooky season to start. And this is, you know, at the start of October. It is in theaters right now if you want to check it out. It's just, again, like the 2019 film, everything outside of them that the movie tries to shove in, I don't quite think works. So take it at your own risk. I found it fun. So what would you say is your star rating for it, too? I want to be nice to it. I give it a very generous 6 out of 10, and that feels generous. That's the same score I gave the first movie. Again, it's just one of the things where I, I like the characters. I like the choices here to a degree. But if you're not a fan of those or you're really cynical when it comes to, you know, studio animation humor, which this is very much a lot of, you're not going to get behind. Solid. All right. And so I think we'll get into the next movie that we also have on the dock. So we have The Many Saints of Newark, which is actually the one that I ended up reviewing. I was really pumped about it. So with The Many Saints of Newark, it is currently in theaters and also on HBO Max streaming simultaneously. But it is actually a prequel movie based off of the TV series The Sopranos. So huge for people who are fans uh, fans of like uh, crime drama and specifically mafia crime drama. So it, it basically follows the origin stories of Tony Soprano. So he was the main character for the Sopranos TV show. Um, but it, in a way, I, I feel like marketing cheated us because the movie is actually not just about Tony. I, I would actually say it's more Dickie Maltesanti's story. So with Dickie, he's actually um, one, of the, one of the guys that's involved within the crime family who actually influenced Tony Soprano to become the person he is in the TV show. And so we, we basically see a little bit of everything in here to its own detriment or to its own benefit, depending on how you look at it. This cast is also really, really, really good. 
John Bernthal, Vera Farmiga. We also have Ray Liotta um, and Michael Gandolfini, of course, who is actually James Gandolfini's son. And James was the one who played um, Tony Soprano in the original TV show. Um, and we also have a wide variety of different people who are also playing younger versions of well-beloved characters like Billy Magnuson, um, who does play Polly Walnuts, John Magaro, who plays Silvio, and um, Samson, I, goodness, forgive me for the last name, Moek. Mo- Kiola, Moa Kiola, I'd say, um, who plays Pussy. So we do see a lot of beloved characters. And even as we're naming these different characters off the bat, you would probably be correct in guessing you might need to see the TV show uh, to understand some of the context. I mean, there, you know, it's not necessary in order to see it, but I think it'll kind of heighten your experience in knowing some of these characters and where they end up in The Sopranos and just kind of understanding their origins in this one. It's, it's kind of funny to see where some of those things come from. Um, and so for me personally, I've actually only seen the first season of The Sopranos, but I love it. And my family is a huge fan, fan of The Sopranos, the Godfather, Goodfellas, anything Martin Scorsese's written for crime drama mafias, basically we're here for it. Um, and so that's why I was really excited about this one, just because it's a really a big fan favorite for my family. So I thought that, you know, it was really well written the story. It was something that was very interesting, you know, to kind of see these origins for Tony. Um, and I kind of was surprised by it because again, marketing fooled us. It looked like it was mostly going to be about teenage Tony Soprano, but it ended up being Dickie Moltisanti's show because um, he's actually the father of Christopher, who is a huge, huge character in the Sopranos. And, and he and um, Tony Soprano are very, very close. They're almost, I'd say like father and son, though, I believe they're just, you know, cousins, but it, it's just interesting to see his story where Dickie ends up and, I feel like there is a lot in the movie that should have been better off as a limited run series. It it just felt like they were trying to shove a lot into it, especially with the race rights. I just feel like Leslie Odom Jr. was really underutilized, especially more so in the third act. Um, And, you know, the race rights were just, in my opinion, just kind of there in the background for like time's sake, if that makes sense. Time is in timeline's sake. Um, And so I feel like that would have really done well as kind of its own episode or its own series in the end, because some of these characters just felt very, very rushed. And I feel like a limited series would have given them a little bit more time to breathe. And when I was talking to some of my fellow movie critics next to me, we kind of felt the same way about it. Like, you know, the story's fun, but it's just, it needed more room to breathe considering these characters already well-developed and so well-known and loved that it just would have been cooler to see them in a limited run series. Um, But yeah, I would say that there is a lot of noise in terms of the plot like that, but uh, I'd also like to hear Brandon's thoughts on it too, because I know that Brandon also saw it. Yeah, and also just add uh, Michael Pirioli, who is Christopher Montesani in The Sopranos, narrates the whole thing. So there's also that connection in there as well. Um, I've seen the pilot for a film class, and I didn't remember that much of it. I kind of gathered that it wasn't going to be my thing. I intend to give it like a full fair watch at some point. Like, I'm not going to pass it off. Because I've heard Definitely recommend. Yes, and obviously the like James Gittlefini, rest in peace, who apparently did amazing work in that. And I love most of the cast in there as well. Um, and I will admit, like, the concept of, because from what I've heard about, you know, uh, about Tony as a character, the idea of Michael Gandolfini going back and exploring that, especially at that time, that was interesting to me. But because I, I didn't know a lot of the context, so on the one hand, I was very lost. On the other hand, I was also very intrigued. Um, like, I will totally agree with you. This should have been a, this should have been a series. Uh, it's two hours long, and it feels like it's rushing somehow, some way. And I don't necessarily blame Alan Taylor, and I don't want to blame Alan Taylor for doing this, because we've given enough flack for, you know, Thor of the Dark World and Terminator Genesis, and I don't want to give the guy more flack. Like, he was clearly doing a lot of work with this to make this appeal to both fans and make this a really concise story of, you know, 
Italian black relationships at that time in Newark. And I think for what he does, it doesn't make it all the way through, but it does some really interesting things. Like I like the relationship between Alessandro Nivola's character and Leslie Odom Jr.'s character. I like the sort of weird dynamic that they have sort of, you know, this, oh, I will kill you at some point and I will kill you back and we'll just have to constantly like live in fear of one. Like I kind of like that weird dichotomy that the film starts to play with. Um, Vera Farmiga is amazing in this. Uh, she doesn't live it that often, but she's really darn good in it. Um, and, and she's always good, but I was I was really impressed by what she was able to do here. And like Corey Stoll pops up in here and, you know, a couple other really great actors. At the end of the day, though, I am sort of on your same page. This was, it felt really rushed. There are points in the movie that feel like this should have happened to this, to this. And that middle point is gone. And we just have to get to like the next scene in a jail cell or the next scene at like a party. And we have to go to like the next thing, which again, for a two hour movie feels really weird, especially for something like this. Um, and as far as Michael Gandolfini as young Tony, he is actually really interesting because I, again, I'm sounding like a total novice when it comes to all this, but like, he's a genius, like he's a natural leader. And he, you clearly see that throughout the movie, but he is so misguided by the influence in his life. And I, was kind of intrigued by the notion of like, you know, anger begets more anger and, you know, paranoia begets more paranoia and things like that. Against the Newark riots, I don't think is necessarily the smartest choice because I think that could have been handled with a bit more nuance. But again, you have Leslie Odom Jr. who is giving a lot of that a bit more focus and a bit more of a mouthpiece. So I enjoyed this uh, as a novice coming into it. I know there's plenty of details I missed, but you know what? I kind of like it. Yeah. And, and that's the fun of it is like, you know, it's interesting to see a fan's perspective versus a mild fan's perspective versus like kind of novices to this because they're like any movie, they're going to be varying degrees of it. And I agree with just to add what you were mentioning about Vera. It's so funny because this cast, I think, overall did a pretty good job. I, I honestly thought guy uh, that, that Silvio was a bit too much like because he does have yeah. some exaggerated things to him. If you see The Sopranos, he is an exaggerated guy. He does have a style. But to me, it just felt like it was trying too obviously to be like the the you know the counterpart and so you know there are a couple times like that where some of the actors had those moments like that where they were trying too hard to be like their older counterpart but either way it was still fun especially because like you mentioned with vera she i would say was the perfect perfect livia soprano because even something small like when she was talking to the school principal and like they were like oh it's you know test say he's a leader and she scoffs it's like oh my gosh that's such a livia soprano thing like if you see the show it it was it was just perfect and and it's just there's something about seeing michael gandolfini playing this role that his father held which is arguably his most significant role that he played in his life so that was just enjoyable in itself for me when it comes to star rating i i would give it a seven that's what i gave it in the review because it was entertaining don't get us wrong the wax were pretty good not gonna lie um pretty gruesome um so then it's like you know they were it was still really an entertaining show uh, you know for being two hours but it, it did rush a bit and so for me it's like a it's a decent seven I will actually concur with that. Like a lot of the violence comes out of nowhere. And when it does, it, it's almost jump scare. Like, like you, and that's the Sopranos different. way. That's, that's how it is. <laughs> <laughs> that is genuinely, say. that is the show. It just, they'll come out of nowhere, but then at the same time, you'll know it's coming. You just kind of feel when someone's time is up, but when it actually comes to the kill, it's fast, sudden. Oh yeah. I, I'll go a little lower. I'll go 6.5 just because again, there, there was a lot of the nuance that was lost to me, but Again, like some surprisingly good performances. I liked some of the story directions it takes. I wish it was expanded. I feel like if this was an expanded, you know, seven to eight episode series, it could really flesh out a lot of what it's going for. But you know what? I'll, I'll give credit to Alan Taylor Words Do. I'll give credit to David Chase Words Do. This was worth it. I'm glad I saw it. And if nothing else, it gave me a reason to go, maybe give Sopranos another shot. 
Cool. And so I think then we'll move on to the next one, which is also Brandon's show too. So then I, um, I will leave it to Brandon to describe Venom. Let there be carnage. Yeah, so Venom 2 uh, is out in theaters right now. Uh, this is, again, the sequel to 2018's Venom. Once again, stars Tom Hardy as uh, Eddie Brock, a.k.a. Venom, who also does the uh, motion capture and voice for the symbiote Venom as well. Uh, Andy Serkis this time comes back to direct in, ter- in place of uh, Ruben Fleischer, of course, from uh, Zombieland, who did the first movie. Andy Serkis is probably best known, as far as directing-wise, for uh, Mowgli, the uh, Netflix Jungle Book adaptation for a few years ago. And we essentially pick up about a year after the events of the first Venom. Uh, Eddie is still working as sort of a beatnik reporter, kind of building up his own name again. Uh, He's trying to reconcile with his uh, estranged girlfriend, uh, Anne, played by Michelle Williams, and her soon-to-be fiancé, Dan, played by Reed Scott from Fleabag. Meanwhile, at the same time, uh, he interacts with a sociopathic criminal named Cletus Cassidy, played by Woody Harrelson, uh, who seems to be toying with Eddie in some weird kind of, you know, Silence of the Lambsy type way. Um, eventually, right before his sentencing of death, he accidentally attacks Eddie. He takes a bite of him, and that transfers a part of the symbiote over to Cletus, and he becomes this sort of raging, blood, muscly monster known as Carnage, and we get the title of the movie. Uh, all the while, Eddie and the symbiote are having has basically described by Twitter as marriage problems. Like, they really just do not like each other, and they do not find a clear way to work out with one another. Venom kind of is, you know, threatening to leave at certain points, and, you know, Eddie is like, oh, you live in my body, and you live by my rules, and that's kind of a whole thing in the story. So there's kind of three conjoining plots all convening around, you know, the threat of carnage. Uh, I did not like the first Venom movie. In fact, actually, fun fact, that was the first movie that I reviewed for uh, State Press. I didn't like it. I thought it was way too reminiscent of of kind of mid-tier comic adaptations of the 90s where they were like, let's put in some characters, let's put in some action, and it'll be a thing. And I didn't really care for it. The humor didn't usually stick unless it was the stuff between Eddie and the symbiote, which I thought, which actually thought was pretty endearing and kind of fun. This doubles down on a lot of that. And I can say because of that, I kind of like this. Um, I'm as shocked as anyone. Uh, like Kelly Marcel's script, I think, leans into a lot more of what I think was lacking in the first Venom movie, which was a distinct sense of pacing and a distinct sense of where these two are. Like, I felt like for so much of the first Venom movie, it was the symbiote is like a weird reflection of Eddie. And I think that works to a degree, but when you're trying to make it distinctive and snarky, I don't think it quite works. Here, they're very clearly two separate entities. So that whole like marriage couple metaphor actually kind of works. And so when we get like the weird, you know, kind of situations between Eddie and the symbiote, it actually kind of works. Like you feel the kind of bitterness in there, but there is like a love in there, but you never feel like which one of them is going to pan out. And that kind of adds a bit of suspense to there in addition to all of the carnage stuff. And oh my God, if you see this movie for any reason, see it for Woody Harrelson. He is amazing in this. He is lean. He's leaning into so much of carnage's because in the comics, Cletus Cassidy is, you know, insane. And he absolutely revels at much like the Joker kind of does in the best Batman runs. I found so often Harrelson would channel those instincts of, you know, a Heath Ledger or channel those instincts of, you know, a Jack Nicholson in those portrayals of Joker of just going completely madcap, like just seeing a thing and seeing if it works. And for this character, it more often than not does because he has all the charisma in the world to do it. And I absolutely love his screen presence on here. And the times where we do see him interacting with Betty do have a kind of Silence of the Lambs vibe of, you know, he clearly knows more than sending on or maybe he doesn't, but it's clearly trying to toy with Eddie in a certain way. No surprise, it's, you know, king of motion capture, Andy Circus. He does what he can with visual effects. But he does a lot with, like, you know, the way the symbiotes move and how different Carnage is as a symbiote compared to Venom, because Carnage 
kind of doesn't care about his bodily harm, so he can do more, like, abrasive things, and I kind of admired the visceralness of it all. I will admit, uh, the soundtrack is still not great. There's an Eminem song at the end that doesn't really fit, and it's not great again. Um, I don't love the stuff between, you know, the Michelle Williams and Reed Scott stuff. Like, I didn't love them in the first movie, but at least that had some kind of tension to it. Here, you're like, they're never getting back together. Like, this is not going to be a thing. This is not the crux of the movie. They're just here to serve a purpose to here. And for some cool fan service bits. And Naomi Harris in the first half is really good. There's some really great flashback sequences where we get to see kind of her and Cletus's relationship. And it's this weird kind of twisted body and glide type thing. And then later on, they just kind of forget she is there because we have Carnage there. So for a while, I just thought, okay, cool. But you know what? It's enjoyable. Like, it's if you like the first movie, you're going to love this. And if you're, you know, a snob like me and you didn't like the first Venom movie, I think there's actually enough to get out of here. Like, the character dynamics are better. The action is better. The humor is weirdly consistent. And you know what? It's it's legitimately enjoyable. I had a fun time with this. Hi, everyone. Brandon from the Editing Bays here. I was actually reminded that I never actually gave a score to this movie. Whoops. Um, to sum up, I guess I'll give Venom Let the Be Carnage a very strong 7 out of 10. Uh, to sum up my thoughts again, it's a significant improvement over the first. I found it consistently enjoyable and surprisingly enjoyable to a degree that I wasn't expecting, albeit with its very own distinct, definite flaws that I wish I could see past and a surf material that, I, again, I wish it took more seriously. But you know what? I enjoyed it for what it was. It surprised me. I also didn't mention the mid credit scene in this. There is one if you were curious, and it's pretty big uh it's a thing that happens it's gonna make a lot of people very happy i don't know if i'm one of them but i'm definitely gonna be thinking about this and i was definitely a little bit in shock from it so if you're a total fan nerd like i am you might have fun with it so with that being said i will get my disembodied voice out of here and back to the show all right and i'm back with lunch for everybody um (laughs) great conversation uh (laughs) But now it's time to talk TV. So let's talk TV stream wars. This is the part where we talk about Disney. We talk about Hulu. We're talking about big old sinkholes. Like we're exploring it all. There are some new series we're diving into as well as some continuations. So the first thing we're knocking out is that new episode of Marvel's What If. So we are on the eighth episode. And the title of this one is What If Ultron one. So this actually continues off of the teaser that we received at the end of episode seven. Uh, that's Thor without a brother. So we see um, this this version of Ultron. All the Infinity Stones are on his armor. You see Ultron's mask lift and its vision. So you're just like, what kind of world am I being thrown into? And that world is immediately shown to you in episode eight. Uh, this is... You know, spoiler alert, this is going to be the, at the top of my list after we have this conversation because all of the abilities, all of the uh, situations that we see, you know, Infinity Stoned out Ultron is just some of the best stuff that I think we've seen in the What If series. So, um, you know, this is an episode that centralizes itself around the characters of Black Widow and we have Hawkeye. And um, it's at a point where immediately, like in the first 10 minutes, you see vision outpower iron man i guess he has a different moral system so he immediately leaves and goes to find thanos and you know i guess are we just going to do spoilers i think that we should because we basically agreed to do spoilers for what if we do spoilers okay then i'm telling you right now (laughs) vision just slices vision slices 
Thanos in half with his mind laser beam. And I loved seeing that, like a slice of turkey just in half and then melts down that infinity gauntlet that we're, you know, we're, we're, um, at, at, what's the word I'm thinking of? We are like worshiping the infinity gauntlet for so many of the movies in the MCU and vision just completely melts it. It was such a powerful moment and just take those stones and just creates armor out of it. And then you just see him like wreak havoc across the across the multiverse so we have so much more to talk about um i do want to get those initial reactions from uh from you brandon from you sam uh why don't we start with you sam how did you feel when you saw vision just flip from from the vision that we know well now i want to see a a funny line this is an opportunity for marvel i hope you're listening to make some kind of thanos line turkey slicer or something like that Uh, (laughs) but i i'm excited about this uh no i would say that um the biggest thing i took away from this episode was the watcher the watcher's whole um i whole uh what do you call it like influence in this tv show this episode it was just changed at the drop of a hat from the ways that we've seen him in past episodes so to me i thought that was like the biggest wow moment and it was just kind of interesting to see him debate what he's been doing for his entire existence it's like really am i really just the watcher do i have a say in this and it was just so epic to see like that that character kind of grapple with himself and his ideals and his motives so for me that was that was the biggest thing and um i i was i just thought that this was a really big game-changing episode you know the thing in civil war when cap is splitting the log in half yeah (laughs) um i did something that i never do when i watch television i took notes because there were a lot of things that i had to bring up and question my nerd brain about this so again, this is, you know, basically what if Age of Ultron. So what if Ultron won? And we see, you know, the Quinjet kind of, you know, flying in Sokovia when the nuclear holocaust goes off. But I initially forgot how early that took place. Because then later on, Ultron goes to, you know, uh, he goes to Asgard and he goes to Xandar and all that place. And I was like, that's right. All of phase three never happens. So Thor, who knows where he is? He might have died in that weird computer explosion. We just have to kind of, you know, let that go, whatever. But, you know, all the Guardians, they're still doing their thing. It also brings up the question, when Thanos comes to Earth with the Soul Stone, who did he sacrifice? Because Gamora is still alive. So he not sacrificed Nebula, maybe? I love the fact that we follow the mo- the two most human Avengers in this, that being Natasha and Clint. It almost looks like, a, like an in-joke to, you know, the original Avengers fandom. We're like, why are Clint and Nat on the team? They don't do anything. Well, they're the ones who survived the, you know, Ultron Holocaust, so to speak. So maybe not. Um, I lo- yes, exactly. Um, I love, you know, Nat... First of all, Natcap is awesome. I'm so glad we're seeing her later. But I love that, you know, spoilers for any of you who haven't seen Black Widow, I love that Nat is essentially taking up the mantle of her dad in Alexi, like taking up the Red Guardian shield. I like that kind of mo- uh, the motif about it. Um, and you're right. All of the stuff with the Watcher, who I, neither of you guys watch, you know, any of the Arrowverse stuff like Arrow and Flash and Crisis or anything. Or No, I nah. actually did. Did you watch uh, the Crisis crossover? No. <laughs> okay, so... Needless to say, there is a scene in part one of the crossover where a character dies, and you see the Monitor, who is this all-powerful, omnipotent being, a la the Watcher, and he kind of has this expression on his face going, oh god, what's happening? And it's the first moment where you see a character with that kind of, like, godlike prestige break. And I got that same vibe from the Watcher this week of, like, we've seen this guy be, you know, basically all-powerful and, you know, so confident in himself, and now we get to see a god break. And I love that, you know, motif and fiction of seeing, you know, people with that much power break, uh, especially when you have someone as threatening as Ultron. 
who Ross Marquand collecting his own Infinity Stones of, you know, villain voices between that and uh, Red Skull and Infinity War, which I thought was just a neat thing. Uh, I have way too much to say about this. I'm going to toss back over to you guys, but I love a lot about this and I have so many more questions. I think I love what we see from Nat and Clint uh, in the beginning. I think that it's some of the best, you know, action that we had uh, time spent with these characters. But this is equal parts like Ultron's episode, you know, Ultron slash Vision, their episode, as it is the Watchers. Like seeing the Watcher in combat, I think just, you know, it, it got my heart racing because this is a character, yeah, who had this position of safety and just like omnipotence over the over the vast universe. But there's that sense of dread as soon as Ultron like breaks through and recognizes him. And the only time we'd seen that before was when, um, well, not that feeling of dread, but that feeling of recognition was when Doctor Strange in episode um, four, Doctor Strange was left in his little bubble and begging, pleading with the Watcher to, to intervene, to do something. And the Watcher just, um, just watch he just looked on and so uh so you're getting some of the best action i think from what the what if series has to offer there is a there is a scene or scenes where ultron punches the watcher with each punch he's like going to another dimension another realm he's he in literally Asgard. punches the multiverse out of him yes and it is so good like that, that's what made me go wow like they still have so they have so much to do with this series. And I, I'm just happy that we're that we're this far along and that we have so much to talk about. Um, that was one thing I, I had to mention that. Um, and then he just, Cap, uh, Ultron with the Infinity Gauntlet against Captain Marvel, you know, Thanos against Captain Marvel with the Gauntlet, he'll punch Captain Marvel with the Power Stone. Ultron, I'll just blow up the surrounding seven planets. That's how I'll take her out. And it works. <laughs> yeah. Side note, I, I don't want to hear any more Carol Danvers slander. She nearly took out God Ultron with at least a couple punches. Stop it. Yeah, it took the explosion of seven planets to wipe her, to wipe Captain Marvel out. I think that was amazing. That's my final note on it. Uh, Sam, do you have any parting remarks? Or we do have to do our ratings too. I just think the parting remark is that we've had some of the best lines we've ever had in the show in this last segment alone. <laughs> um, but <laughs> anyways, um, no, I think I'll, I'll just close it honestly um, by giving off my uh, first rating for where we're at so far. Um, so I'm going to rank them from like the, my most favorite to like least favorite. So still um, this would be four, eight, six, seven, three, one, five, two. For context, that is Dr. Strange. The Ultron one that we just saw, it really climbed up there for me. It was phenomenal. Uh, Killmonger, Thor's party, everyone dies. The Peggy Carter episode, zombies, and T'Challa Star-Lord for Brandon's poor heartbreaking in the background. Oh, boo. Thank you. Uh, my series of episodes goes from this most recent episode. I love seeing all things with Ultron and seeing that Watcher crack. So it goes episode eight, four, five, six, two, one, seven, three. And, um, Brandon, let's go on to yours. Okay. Uh, from bottom to top, so from eight to what I should say, uh, I have Captain Carter, uh, Murder Mystery, Thor the Only Child, Zombies. Yes, Zombies did rise up one. I'm, um, Killmonger, then it gets real tough. Then I will go Ultron Infinity. And I, I know that's even way too, I love all three of these episodes very, very dearly, but Ultron Infinity is right there solely because of concerns I have for the finale. Then I have Strange Supreme, T'Challa, number one. Ha ha. And, I mean, speaking of that finale, we see the Watcher approach Doctor Strange, um, who has lost his humanity. And so it looks like we're going to get a tie-in with multiple episodes, fine, like, in this next, whatever's awaiting us next week, it's bringing in um, characters from the past episodes. And we can't wait to see that. I'm scared, I, legit. <laughs> like, I am interested in seeing where this goes. 
I guess if we are talking about that, I will just bring it up really quickly. On the one hand, I am ecstatic to see a multiversal Avengers team potentially next week under the command of the Watcher going up against God Ultron. That sounds monumentally epic. On the other hand, we are getting a season two, and it just makes me wonder, well, if this is your big buildup for season one, what are you going to do for season two? Like, are you going to connect things? Or are you just going to go back to individually? So it was that kind of thing of like, yay, but also, ha. Huh. Oh, for sure. Good comment. <laughs> Okay, uh, well, we can move on to our next show. We're actually going to be talking uh, a series that Brandon has been in tune with. It is on Disney Plus. It's on Disney Channel. Um, it is a series called Amphibia, but Sam and I actually, um, we're, we're not as in tune as you, Brandon. So if you could give us a summary of the series and then talk about your reactions from the premiering episode uh, one from season three, we'd love to hear it. This is where it gets difficult because season three is basically a reset of the status quo. And I want you guys to watch it. So I have to be very, very careful about how I describe this. For context, I absolutely adore the season two finale. When I started watching it, which is essentially, there, there's two seasons, they're all available on Disney+. Plus. You can go watch it there if you're so inclined. I will essentially tell you that where we start off on season three, episode one, is Anne, who is our main character, voiced by Brenda Song from the uh, Sweet Life of Zack and Cody and a couple other things, uh, and the Planters, who are, for context, in season one, when Anne pops into Amphibia via magical nonsense. She encounters this race of basically frog people who are named the Planters, and they're just kind of like humdum kind of farm family. You have uh, Hot Pop, who is voiced by Bill Farmer, who voices uh, Goofy and all the other Disney things. You have a couple other actors in there, I'm forgetting their names as well, but they kind of form like a surrogate bonded family. They go through things. It's also premiering on Disney Channel pretty infrequently as well. When I started watching on Disney+, Plus, just I had heard about it, I thought, oh, this is really fun. It's hilarious. Like, the humor is dark and really morbid. The facial expressions are perfect, not great, perfect. Like every facial expression is so wonderfully exaggerated and really just wonderful. And there's there starts to be a story point, but you never quite get there until sort of the tail end of season one. Now we're in season three and we're in a different place, quote unquote. I really don't want to say. Um, I will simply tell you that the... The change of pace does nothing to affect the humor. It's still absolutely hilarious. It's still absolutely morbid, and I love every second of it. The facial expressions are still perfect. Like, a lot of the animation has been really stepping up its game in the last, you know, half a season, two up until now. Maybe the most story-heavy season that we've been promised. This is supposed to be the final season of Amphibia as well. I probably should have mentioned that. So this is going to be uh, wrapping everything up, essentially. It's all half-hour episodes, uh, so the story's going to only go so long. But I feel like they've been doing a lot with just this premiere. You get to meet some characters very important to Anne. I will simply say that. And you get to see how the planters interact with them, how they interact with this new environment, uh, this sort of thing. And again, it's a really great premiere. Like as someone who had sky-high expectations as of the season two finale, this did not accede to them, but it it met a lot of them. And I still have a lot of fun with this and I cannot wait to see where season three goes. So if any of you are interested, the first two seasons are on Disney+. Plus. I encourage you to watch them. You can binge through them relatively quickly. Go check it out. Thank you so much, Brandon, for that take on Amphibia. I honestly can't wait to see it. You're making me more, more like hyped about it. So I definitely got to check it out. And now I think we'll move on ahead to our, our last TV show on the dock, which is La Brea. So uh, Brandon, take it away with our, our mini spiel and intro. So, La Brea, uh, this is the latest event series from NBC. Uh, it's created by uh, David Applebaum, uh, and it just premiered last week. Uh, episode one premiered. We all checked it out. We're going to be talking about it. Basically, I, 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 will say, I, I usually don't look to Rotten Tomatoes for these, but someone uh, described it as, what if Richard Kelly got just a expletive ton of money and went, went to the Lost Wild with it? And I thought, 
yeah, that's a bad enough way of describing it. Uh, basically, it follows a um, sort of a, a dysfunctional family in the midst of Los Angeles. You have three of the family members. You have uh, Eve, who is the mom. You have uh, you have Izzy, who is the daughter. You have Josh, who is the son. Uh, Izzy is also Izzy is also a disabled person. She has a prosthetic leg. That is actually important in the show. That's the only reason why I'm bringing it up. They're passing through LA traffic. They're you know musing on where their dad is. He's actually trying to join the military again. When all of a sudden chaos happens. And a massive earthquake happens, but it's not actually an earthquake. It's actually a sinkhole that opens up miles below the surface. It sucks, you know, thousands of people inside. Everyone thinks there's a huge conundrum. And then the survivors wake up in what is seemingly this kind of open field foresty area. Um, all the cars are there. The street signs are there. Like medical supplies are there. Everything is there including other things as well. There's, you know, certain hills and certain landmarks. There's, you know, wolves and various wildlife and everything. And the cast of that area kind of have to reconvene and, you know, basically uh, sort of like recontextualize society in that regard. Back up on the surface, we also follow the dad who has made it down to LA. Uh, the daughter who survived the sinkhole incident, they basically team up and try to convince the local government authorities who are researching the whole thing, who maybe know more than they're letting on, uh, about what is going on and trying to save the potential survivors that are down the sinkhole. Uh, there's also a whole thing with the dad and visions, and that's a whole thing. Uh, Noah, I want to get to you first, because you seem to be the most enthusiastic about this. So I want to get your thoughts. What were your thoughts going into it, first and foremost, and what did you think of the pilots? I mean, what can I say going into it? Um, I saw that we, uh, you know, one of our one of our hosts here put La Brea on our docket. And I thought, oh, what's La Brea, NBC? Like, I'll check that out. I saw that it was streaming on Hulu. And so I kind of went in blind and I was so happy that I did because um, we get this high concept of a huge sinkhole just opening up. I was just, I was kind of ready. I was like, is this San Andreas? Like, is this like the 911 show? Like what's happening here? Like, let, let's see what's going on. So I started the episode and I will say that I'm a little scared because I know you two have different opinions than me. <laughs> so I want to, I cannot wait to hear you both just conflict with my point of view. Uh, but what I will say is um, from the, from the very first uh, minutes of the episode, the, you know, we're introduced uh, at the La Brea with a shot of the La Brea tar pits and you see like the mammoths like sinking in the artificial tar and um, it gives you kind of like a tease a foreshadowing to where the the, the future of this episode is going to is going to explore so then the sinkhole immediately starts like the first 10 minutes is that sinkhole ripping open and you know it's such a major event that it makes you go well damn this is episode one like where does it go from here? And as you're seeing it open, it just becomes this massive um, crater or not even a crater, just massive hole. And I'm looking at my partner who's watching it with me this morning. And I go, oh my gosh, like what? It's over the tar pit. So all of the prehistoric animals are going to melt out of their tar. And it's going to come flying out of the hole. And then we see like these pre prehistoric birds fly out of the hole. And I go, whoa, like way, way to call that one out. Um, but that, that raised all those are positive signs for me. I love a, you know, prehistoric meshed with like modern day and where do those animals come from? Uh, but then we see that, you know, the, the victims of the sinkhole, like the mother and the son, they fall through and they're seemingly transported to a new land and they look like they don't have a scratch on them. I'm kind of like, oh, well, you know, it's TV magic. So there, there's a lot of forgiveness happening from, from my end as a viewer. Like I wouldn't watch or take a movie as seriously if they made these mistakes, but I know it's an NBC show and I know that it's, you know, it, it's in the same vein of like, it reminds me of Lost. Um, you know, I know one of you is a Terra Nova fan. So I kind of want to hear if there was any 
anything you know uh, that crossed over in your mind between this series and that because we do have like primitive creatures uh, like a saber-toothed tiger or like a um you know d- just these different creatures that are coming to our survivors of the the, the of the fall and they're just in a, in a weird like green land where the visual that they had at the bottom of the hole is actually the visual in the sky for where they are now. It's like it raises a lot of questions, but I love the I love the mystery behind it. It does feel like another uh, kind of series like Lost where, yeah, we had this initial event that really scattered these characters. Now the entire series is going to explore uh, what is the government hiding because they seem to know the truth behind this sinkhole. It's not a natural occurrence. And then um, what is the thing with the dad and his visions? Um, that's that's out the gate how I feel. Um, I am on board with it because it's not, in my opinion, it's not terrible. Like it's entertaining for me because it's such a, of a high concept. I need them to do something though, because I don't know if I can stand just them hurtling around like their one set piece of like a broken down building and like three cars. And I'm like, this thing swallowed miles and miles of a city. Like there should be much more than, you know, war of the war or yeah war of the worlds like the tom cruise driving through just one neighborhood with the airplane like i want to see littered like city debris um you know where is this going so that's how i feel i'm definitely gonna stick with it though because like i said i was entertained um and every actor in this series looks like actor like they look like fit uh, more notable actors in Hollywood, or just I should just say more popularized actors in Hollywood, but they're not. Like I thought the lead was Blake Lively. Um, I thought I recognized a Stranger Things actor. Uh, the same thing happened for you both, I'm aware. So uh, Sam, why don't we go to you? You know, I really appreciated that you mentioned some of the inconsistencies because I didn't notice them at the moment. Like you're right. Like some of them fell through the sky with like nothing on them, not a scratch, but then others were like completely killed, like in their vehicles when they fell down. So it's like, what is the context? No idea. So that is an interesting inconsistency that i did not notice but um (laughs) yeah it's for me i had no expectations going into this either i believe brandon was the one who added it to the doc because i didn't add it and then based off what you said noah you clearly didn't so either we have a mysterious big brother or it's brandon or maybe it's both (laughs) and so (laughs) i was excited because then i looked it up with no context as well and honestly i you know i had fun with it but my here's my big problem with it it's like I am so suspicious of NBC. I do not trust NBC. And I mean that because I have been attached to multiple projects from NBC that are similar in this way, where there's some kind of mystery and I'm hooked. I mean, with this, it's an interesting story. They did this to me with uh, Revolution. Absolutely loved Revolution. It stopped at a big cliffhanger because they canceled it. Manifest. Same idea. Timeless. Interesting concept. Let's explore all these different universes. It's a mystery, like, canceled. And so it's just like NBC does this to me. And I'm like, why you got to do this to me every time? So I am actually keeping this show at an arm's length for that exact reason, because I don't want to get too attached to it. I fear that it's just like all the others that flow in with a like a mystery plot. And it ends up being canceled in the end. So that's kind of like my personal gripe with it. But otherwise, taking the, the show as a whole, um, I just, I don't like it that much. And I think it's just because of the concept. There were some moments that were like a little melodramatic from the acting. Um, and, and there are so many inconsistencies in it that make me a little suspicious on where this is going in terms of writing. Um, because I would even like to know why all those people were placed in various areas. Cause they make it clear that things dropped from the sky, but they were dropped randomly, like in no one consistent area. 
maybe it was just an afterthought. I don't know. Like, and so for me, it was like an okay premiere. Um, I didn't love it personally. And um, I don't know. We'll see what happens with it. So how about you, Brandon? Yeah, to go to your point earlier, this show has actors and actresses that they are in the show. Um, yeah, like, like I knew Natalie Z from, um, I, I don't know if it's Z or Z, I've never heard it pronounced, but I, I know she was in Justified, and that's basically the only actor connection that I've had from this. Um, I saw the trailer. It did not look great, but I, I had hope because I thought, okay, you know, the whole sinkhole thing, that was promising. The whole like other dimension thing, that could be weird and interesting. I think it was around literally the last five minutes where it sort of clicked to me like, I know where this is going. I know where this is going. And I kind of don't care. I hope Noah's right about this, that it's throwing things, you know, into breadcrumb land, like lost land and, you know, throwing us towards like red herrings and everything. I hope that's good. But I think I just know where it's going. And I don't want to spoil it for people who, you know, haven't seen it. But I, I think I just know where it's taking its characters, where it's taking its main storyline, where it's taking the mystery. The two things that I do think are interesting about it. I think the dad's thing with the visions is kind of interesting because they kind of play off like, you know, oh, he had this thing with it, you know, he had the military experiment and like maybe that impacted it. And there's another portal maybe that might be going down. Like maybe there's more things the government knows about. It felt very X-Files-y. Like I could get into that, especially like the relationship between him and his daughter. That was kind of interesting. Um, I don't care about the mom-son dynamic. There are way more interesting characters in like the weird portal land that I care one of which is the shrink, who I actually think is very interesting. Like, I think that kind of portrait of, you know, of suicidal grief and, you know, marital estrangement, like, I like that port. I'm forgetting the actor's name, but the, the guy who plays the shrink, like, I think he's doing a pretty good job. But the rest of the characters, I don't care about. Like, the seal, who's a doctor. Yeah, of course, there's a seal who's a doctor there. It's, I don't care about the mom. I don't care about the, the son. The the really jerkwad police officer, I do not get, they're, they're sending her up as the villain. She's going to be, you know, the person who chimes in and is like, we have to fight the resources and like the weird wolves and everything. It's going to go to violence. And like, I, I just could gather everything it was going for. And I, I wish I didn't. Because actually, I think that first intro sequence is really good. I think that whole sinkhole sequence is actually really fun and like really engaging, even if I don't love the characters. But I'm like, this is good stakes, like good on you, NBC. But to also go to Sam's point, it does kind of feel like if you're not the Blacklist or you're not the Chicago franchise, you're getting canceled on NBC. Just have that worry about this. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I come back in a few weeks and be like, no, it actually got really good. So I hope that happens, but I wasn't really impressed. To add, I know that I said earlier, like I'm, there's the f- some forgiveness happening. And that's because this show is not like this isn't a limited series from like HBO max that I would put on like a higher pedestal. This is a show where after the first episode I go, yeah, I don't think they have an ending for this. Like, I don't think that it's enough uh, given to us right now to where they have like a full beginning, middle and end already laid out. They're like, no, here's a high concept. Let's just start it. Let's tease these primeval animals. Um, Let's primeval uh, prehistoric animals. And then let's have these different characters, have them involved in some way. But in my head, I'm like, you know, I don't think that they really, I think eventually this series will just have so many plot holes, just like Lost did. I'm not putting it on the same caliber as Lost in any way. If there's not much to do in the alt world, then why spend time there? Like, give us give us enough with each episode to where we can feel the momentum of the story. But, you know, after that first initial sinkhole sequence, um, it moved a lot slower. Yeah, so I no, just my other um, comment that I wanted to make, because you mentioned Terra Nova, and I was actually the person who had seen Terra Nova and liked it. 
I did see kind of like Terra Nova vibes from that, especially when we see the party that did end up falling into the sinkhole because they're the ones in this area. It doesn't look that prehistoric. It just looks like your standard weird jungle, which there are occasional wolves in that look like modern day wolves, but there are some prehistoric birds. Again, the inconsistency thing, I'm just very curious where that goes. But point is, um, yeah, with Terra Nova, I definitely did get those vibes, Noah. So it seems like Azores Librea goes like, yeah, if you want, it's, you know, streaming the day after on Hulu. It's it's also streaming live every Monday, so if you want to watch it, there's at least one recommendation here. If not, <laughs> fine. We are going to move on then to our final segment for today. Uh, if you guys remember from a couple episodes back, uh, we did a uh, we did a segment instead of directorial debuts. We did anniversaries. We were talking about the movie celebrating uh, milestones this coming month. We talked about the September ones. Now we're talking about the October ones as well. These are the movies celebrating anniversaries this month, October 2021, celebrating their 10-year anniversary uh, this month. We have the Shrek spinoff, Puss in Boots. Uh, of course, you know, with Antonio Banderas, uh, Zach Galifianakis, a bunch of other people. We also have uh, The Adventures of Tintin, which is technically 10 years old this month. It, it technically premiered in December. It premiered in the UK in October. I put it on here because I wanted to talk about it. Uh, celebrating 15 years, uh, Martin Scorsese's The Departed, as well as Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. We also have the 20-year anniversaries of David Lynch's The Hall and Drive. Sam is going to be talking about that in a little bit. We also have Donnie Darko, uh, Richard Kelly, again, from La Brea. His name keeps popping up. It's, it's pronounced the departed, as Sam is telling me. I apologize. Uh, uh, Boston. Uh, we also have Training Day. That's also 20 years old. Sure. Uh, celebrating 25 years, we have That Thing You Do, which I'm going to be talking about, as well as uh, Swingers. Um, we also have celebrating the 40-year anniversary of The Evil Dead. Noah's going to be talking about that for a little bit as well as some older anniversaries, uh, 50 years celebrating the French Connection, the original French Connection, as well as uh, The Last Picture Show with uh, Jeff Bridges. And finally, celebrating their 60-year anniversaries, Breakfast at Tiffany's, as well as potentially the original West Side Story. Uh, sources differ whether or not it opened in October or December, but we're going with October because there's going to be plenty of anniversaries in September as it is. So, uh, Sam, I want to get started with you. Which uh, anniversary stood out for, uh, for October? really wanted to talk about Mulholland Drive and Breakfast at Tiffany. So real quick um, with Mulholland Drive, I think it's just a, if you've seen Mulholland Drive, you know Mulholland Drive, and it is very much a David Lynch movie because David Lynch directed and, and wrote it, um, and it's just very strange. It is. Um, but the reason I wanted to talk about it is because I just have such good memories watching it in theaters, but I know this is going to be contradictory as I say, oh, I have such great memories of it. But the thing is, is I don't remember when or how or why I went to go see this movie. I think it was just a random special that they had. I know for sure that I saw it at Filmbar. But for the life of me, I, and Filmbar is an indie movie theater that's in, located in Phoenix. Definitely, you know, like love the place. But basically with Mulholland Drive, it's um, the, the, the synopsis here is it says on IMDb, after car wreck on the winding Mulholland Drive renders a woman amnesiac, she and a perky Hollywood hopeful search for clues and answers across L in a twisting venture beyond dreams and reality so it really is this perfect representation of is this a dream or is this a reality because it's it's very strange and that's what i liked about it so just shout out to to mahalan drive and, and it did star uh, laura herring naomi watts just 
Jonathan Thoreau, Jan Bates, um, and Dan Birnbaum, just um, it's a sample of the people in here. But I also really appreciated Robert Forster's role, too, as Detective McKnight. So, um, you know, there are just a lot of really good actors in this, too. And so for my other one, uh, with Breakfast at Tiffany's, I just wanted to mention that this is such a huge anniversary, especially because, what, you, you mentioned 60 years. That's huge, 60 years. And, it, you know, you really can't deny its cultural influence that Breakfast at Tiffany's has also had on various other movies and TV shows down the line too and so you know i just think it's it's just this kind of era you know it came out in you know 60 years ago so it's about 1961 um and it's just iconic for that era of like i don't know how to describe it like high class if you will um and it's just i think it really represents that well especially since we follow this young new york socialite and that's audrey hepburn of course it's just this really fun movie in my opinion and i think it's just worth noting that congratulations on 60 years and um thanks for just being a staple in in the movies for everybody so uh yeah uh celebrating 15 years is christopher nolan's the prestige uh the prestige centers around really a plot that can be encompassed by magician versus magician. And it's huge Jackman versus Christian Bale. Uh, Michael Caine is in it. Scarlett Johansson. You got Rebecca Hall. And um, this is like a, like an epic movie, I think, because you really have like the, the lengths at which, at which these two magicians are willing to go to um, just perform the, the better act from each other to perform what looks like real magic. And you see, um, you see like the the horror that that exists within some of these characters because of the lengths that they're willing to go to. And I watched this, um, I guess like before I really like cared about movies that much and I was blown away and I had a friend watch it who had never heard of um, the prestige in college. And when I showed it to him, he was also like, he had the same reaction. So just to see its effect on somebody who is like ignorant to the story um, and it's it's twists, it's turns, and it's ending uh, is just a pleasure to experience over and over again. Um, you know, The Prestige probably belongs to one of my short list of movies that I could watch um, anytime. Like, give me give me an evening, and I'll have such a blast watching it with um, with if it's an, if it's somebody new with me, I'd love to introduce them to that movie because that's a movie that really uh, takes you for a ride. And I think. Uh, it's, it's period is so great too. Um, when it takes place, you have, uh, an appearance from like Nikola, Nikola Tesla in it, which is like strange, but completely like fitting for the story. Played uh, by David Bowie. Played by David Bowie. And it's astounding. So anybody who hasn't seen the prestige, uh, please make some time for it. It, it is well worth the watch. And then secondly is The Evil Dead, celebrating 40, 40 years. Uh, funny enough, I watched the 2013 remake uh, last night. And so you even see uh, its influence into today. Like there's so many horror fans that I could speak to uh, and ask them, what are some of those uh, What are some of those movies that really stamped horror into your, uh, your preferred genre? And I think that The Evil Dead is a common one. Uh, this is from, of course, Sam uh, Rami. Please correct me if I'm saying that wrong. Um, and Rami, uh, real quick, Rami. Rami, thank you, who we're going to be so excited to talk about around the time of Multiverse of Madness, uh, the, the sequel to Doctor Strange. But of course, the director of Spider-Man, like so much stuff from Sam Raimi. Yes, so much stuff from Sam Raimi. And then the legacy of The Evil Dead, of course, it had its sequels. And then Bruce Campbell came on to have the HBO show uh, Ash versus Evil Dead, which I've actually I've never seen. So if either of you have comments on it, please share. But I just know that... Um, it's definitely, it has a legacy and uh, it's super relevant. I think even today, um, even with us watching it, like last night, me and a, a pot of my friends, um, it's a wonderful horror movie. Uh, I think that it is, it takes that cabin in the woods setting and like pre uh, preface and just uh, 
gives you such an entertaining story that if you're new to horror, like you can see uh, the effects of today, of course, we put it at a different scale, but to see what they pulled off um, during the time that it was made, it's absolutely entertaining in my opinion. And I'm sorry, that was actually it. So <laughs> we can go ahead and toss to Brandon. Brandon, go ahead and talk to us about the anniversaries you're excited about. Yeah, and Raimi obviously has, you know, his own kind of weird, campy, kooky style to it. And, you know, I will never display his fans for that. I love that thing you do so much. I love it so much. Um, this is one of only two films that Tom Hanks has directed, that and Larry Crown, which I do not love. But I love that thing you do because for all of its shortcomings in its writing, and it does have shortcomings in the writing, like I wish certain things were framed differently. If you're talking about, you know, 1960s, you know, turn of the turn of the decade kind of pop rock boom post Beatles, I wish there were more things explored there. I think all of the characters are more interesting than the film gets some credit for. But gosh darn, it's so much fun. The, the music is so great. The characters are so wonderful to be around. That's, that's sort of like weird, idyllic 60s aesthetic. Tom Hanks has some such weird reverence for that you kind of just find yourself getting into it, even if the dialogue is not always there. I, I just truly love it. Also, rest in peace, Adam Schlesinger, who wrote the title tune. Truly a fantastic songwriter. We miss him dearly. Um, Adventures of Tintin, I also love. Uh, and it's a Spielberg movie from the 2010s that never gets the credit, partly because people don't think it's a Steven Spielberg movie. <laughs> like, people think it's Peter Jackson because, you know, he co-wrote and produced the thing and they were supposed to do, like, the trade-off. Where's our sequel, by the way, Peter? You've been busy for the last decade, huh? I'm waiting. But I've been waiting for a Tintin sequel for a long time. I love the Tintin movie. I think it's animated beautifully. I think it has such a great sense of, you know, again, Spielbergian adventure to it, much akin to, you know, Close Encounters or Indiana Jones. It works so well. That was the movie that introduced me to Jamie Bell as well, who is just a great Tintin in that movie. Um, and as far as the other one, just brief comments on, like, I admit I've never seen The Prestige. It's one of the big holes in my Nolan filmography. I need to see it. I've heard it's amazing, and I have all the faith in the world in David Bowie. Um, Training Day is fantastic. Denzel absolutely deserved the Oscar, although I don't care for the TV show all that much. It's hard to keep up. Just any kind of media, movies, video games, TV shows. Can't keep up. Way too many. <laughs> yeah. So just, just watch when we get to December. We are going to have 20 or something anniversaries. It's nuts. I'm crying on the inside. Oh. <laughs> crying out of stress. But anyways, I, you know, I, I think that about wraps it if you wanted to close it out. Yeah, that'll do it for uh, episode seven of Plot Devices. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this. Listen, while we've got you here, do us a quick favor. Go check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You're probably listening to this on one of the two or our RSS feed. Uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Plot Devices. That's the name of the show. Go follow it there. New episodes are up every Sunday, late afternoon, early evening, depending on what I can get to editing them. And also you can go and follow our social media accounts, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Plot Devices Pod. I want to thank our two co-hosts for today. First of all, Samantha Corvaya. Sam, what do you got going on in your life and where can the people uh, find you online? Yeah, so then lots going on. But the thing I'd like to talk about is that I have a um, screener coming up for Mass. So I'm very excited about that. And I'll talk more about that later. But I'm actually going to be out next week. So stay tuned to see what special we're going to come up with next week. But I'm going to be on vacation as well at Portland for a friend's wedding. So that'll be fun. And I will miss you all dearly next week. So can't wait to come back. But otherwise, you could catch my shenanigans on uh, Twitter at S underscore Incrovia or on Instagram at S or excuse me at Sam, I am 520. Excuse me, I was getting ahead of myself. Um, so yeah, that's where I'm at, and I'm excited to see what's next. Mazel tov and your friend's wedding. Please stay safe and healthy out there, and we will see you when you get back. We cannot wait, which means, that I, will have my, which means that I will have to put my brain up against this nincompoop and Noah Guzman. Noah, where can the people find you online, and what do you got going on in your life? 
Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for tuning into our new episode. Uh, the two uh, pieces of content I'm actually wrapping up on uh, the Odyssey Online for ASU is I'm wrapping two reviews. One is a documentary about uh, the queer, non-binary priest, activist, lawyer, the life of Polly Murray that is streaming now on Amazon Prime Video. I cannot wait to uh, have that review posted that I can share with you all. Um, that amazing documentary. I actually was really much a fan. And then I have I am wrapping a No Time to Die review. So I saw that earlier this week ahead of its October 8th release date and cannot, cannot wait for that discussion. Um, and then let's see next week. I know there's a, the new release A24's Lamb. I'm going to be watching that and providing my thoughts. And um, you can follow me on Twitter. My name is uh, something that I always talked about changing and I haven't done yet. Oh my gosh. K-N-O-W-A. Oh, it's supposed to be like, just so you know, but I'm tired of that pun. It's time for something new. Time for rebrand. But talking about rebranding, back to you, Brandon. Uh, brand. So, and I'm terrible at branding, so it doesn't work out at all. Um, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Go follow my band at Killbox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. And go check me out on the latest episode of No Capes Required with Sky Merida. Go check that out podcast at Zero Capes Required on Twitter and Instagram as well. That'll do it for this week. Uh, for myself, from Samantha Corvaya, from Noah Guzman, this has been Plot Devices. We're queuing the outro music as usual, and we'll catch you guys next time. Did it.